Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And today with me is Helen Jarvis, who has become synonymous with the Khmer Rouge Tribunal and efforts to put Pol Pot's henchmen in the dock and get them tried over the last 20, 30 years. Helen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Luke. Yes, nice to talk to you again. The tribunal looks like it's heading into the final stages. What is to come? There's Q uh, Sam Pan, who's a former head of state. He's the last surviving Khmer Rouge leader. His appeal is up. What can we expect? Well, the, the historic note of it is that it's probably the last public hearing that, uh, that we'll get from the tribunal uh, because it's his appeal to the Supreme Court chamber. And so that, that is the last, uh, the last appeal. They don't have to have a public hearing, but they've decided to this time. And we think it would be the last time that we would see him uh, in the dock and may well be the last uh, public hearing of the ECCC. Right. Looking back, I remember many years ago, uh, you launched a book with the journalist Tom Forthrop, and I actually did the introduction to an audience of about 70 people. And I did ask, raise your hands if you think a Khmer Rouge tribunal would happen. And I think one person raised their hand. It's not the way it turned out. It has happened. How difficult was it to get this tribunal out there, get the international attention, the UN's attention, and get it off the ground? It was truly a Herculean struggle, I think. Uh, It's pretty unbelievable because the Khmer Rouge period here that every Cambodian will tell you lasted uh, three years, eight months and 20 days when they had uh, um, complete control over the country. But it took an awful lot longer than that to bring them to justice after the overthrow. Sure, and people forget that the Civil War continued until 1998. Unbelievably, yes, from 79 to 98. So we had 20 years of actual fighting. And during that time, the government uh, was seeking justice. And from way back, 1979, even before the, the overthrow, they were calling for the establishment of a tribunal along the lines of the Nuremberg Tribunal. That was right. actually explicit. Uh, and in the founding documents of the Renaxe, the National Salvation Front, mm-hmm. they called for that. Uh, time and again, the, the Prime Minister wrote to the UN, there were conferences held here in Cambodia of Buddhists, of scholars, of people. There were campaigns around the world, but the geopolitics was very much against it. It was with, still the Cold War. It was still the Cold War, absolutely. And it was the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And that was not going to be forgotten, that the people who helped liberate the uh, Cambodian people was Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, those who thought they'd lost the war or had lost the war with Vietnam were not going to be supportive of anything to put uh, Vietnam in a good light. And right. I think that uh, that weighed very heavily on the efforts to find justice. And of here. course the Chinese were in there as well. Absolutely, yes. At what point did you think that the tribunal is there, it will happen? When did you think, okay, the people who have been trying to kill the tribunal off won't succeed and it will go ahead? I'm not sure that even to this day <laughs> I've been... Uh, supremely confident of that. Right. Uh, there have been obstacles thrown, marbles thrown under the feet of the 
the hooves of the of the horses, as it were, until today. And maybe the last one hasn't come yet. I think at various times, of course, when when the UN, when the General Assembly accepted the letters from the Prime Ministers uh, in uh, 1997 and said there's a case to answer, that was a huge moment. Mm -hmm. But then, from 97 to 2006, that was uh, nearly 10 years spent on, on negotiating with the UN and establishing uh, the legal uh, judicial foundations for the tribunal, finding the money, that has been a continuing nightmare. And so when they signed the agreement, the Royal Government of Cambodia and the United Nations signed an agreement in the Chattamook Theatre, historic theatre where the mm -hmm. 1979 trial, which was yet another chapter... Backed in this, by the uh, Vietnamese. Yeah, well, backed by the Vietnamese, backed by, well, run by the, uh, the government of the day. Mm -hmm. And when they signed that, that I felt finally, finally, I thought, uh, maybe, okay, we're on the road. But that wasn't the end of it. That was right. 2003. Right. So it took another three years because of the way that the General Assembly decided the financing should come. It should be from voluntary contributions, not out of the UN budget, regular budget. Yep. And so it was a you know, cap-in-hand begging operation to get it started without a generous contribution from Japan and a million dollars from India uh, to the national side. Did we think there was, a, there was enough funding there? Even, even then, the Secretary-General said, oh, no, I have to have commitments for three years before I will put this into effect. So we, that was another challenge. So we got it right appointments of judges, swearing in 2006, and then, of course, the trial itself started. But uh, at no point would you say that this was firmly in place. There were, uh, there were uh, all sorts of obstacles. Right. I'll just add in that, uh, for a quick explanation, that we are recording out on the banks of the Mekong River, and that'll help explain some of the background wildlife and noise that you're hearing. The tribunal it uh, has scored some successes. It uh, secured convictions against Doik, the uh, former commandant of S21, and uh, Nun Shia, who was brother number two to Pol Pot. Both have since passed and died behind bars. Q Sam Pan is the last one left, and his appeal is coming up. How important was Q Sam Pan in the organisational structure of the Khmer Rouge and? Uh, the genocide that happened here? It's an interesting question because he was not at the same uh, level as Nunchia and, and Pol Pot and some of the others. Uh, he was somewhat, um, some people would say, marginalised or uh, on the periphery and certainly his defence has, uh, has mm -hmm. tried to, to paint that picture. But he was... Uh, even though not an office holder of, uh, within the party at such rank, he was their public face uh, right. in negotiations and around the world, the smiling face of, of the Khmer Rouge, a very jovial, uh, no, a very genial um, character and personality. Uh, and so he was trotted out uh, mm -hmm. to defend not only uh, during the regime, but also for decades afterwards. You know, I went to conferences in the 1980s 
where he was he was defending what they'd done and saying, oh well, maybe they hadn't gone far enough or fast enough. So right. uh, he he was certainly uh, in there. Yeah, I remember interviewing Kusan Pan up at his home before he was arrested and charged, so about 20 years ago, and I was struck by how charming he was. He uh, he was living in a traditional Khmer house, much like this, listening to uh, orchestral music. He loved the classics. He was drinking uh, red wine, and he was very engaging. And basically, his attitude was that um, you don't understand. I never understood that because between 1.7 and 2.3 million people were wiped off the planet under their rule. And he did become head of state. And I think he was on the uh, standing committee and the central party committee where they wrote and deployed government policy as well. Yes, he, uh, he indeed. I think. I mean, that's why they trotted him out. He was, uh, he was uh, a character with an urbane uh, manner. He had studied in Paris. He'd Support. written his PhD uh, on, on economic uh, matters. Yeah, uh, and indeed, uh, anyone can be sympathetic with uh, the original aims and uh, stated objectives of, uh, of uh, developing Cambodia, of a more equal society. Yes, so, but he just uh, harped on that, but for that to be achieved over the dead bodies of two million or more is completely unacceptable. So the, mm -hmm. the contradiction uh, was, was indeed striking, I think, compared to the other leaders right. who were all a bit more austere or gruff. I mean, well, I mean, Nunchia, Nunchia, yeah. <laughs> absolute gruff, um, yep. uh, grumpy and and always um, on the offensive. Kusumpan uh, was exactly the opposite, which is exactly why he, he was so valuable to them, I think. Right, as was um, Doik uh, Kangwek Yu, who was the uh, commandant of the S21, where up to 24,000 people uh, were sent to their death, some people say more. That trial tended to capture the imagination, I think, far greater than the current trials. Is that because the crimes of Doik, which were directly linked to Nun Shia, who was number two to Pol Pot, were so graphic and so in your face, and you go out to the Tulsleng Museum or the killing fields where people were taken from Tulsleng out to the killing fields and basically butchered with an ox cart axle to the nape of the neck, it was it was extraordinary in terms of the response it got from the general public. Yes, I think it was easier to comprehend uh, whether it was the right thing to do to divide the uh, charges. Uh, you see, what happened was the co-prosecutors presented all the charges together in one case, and then uh, the judges themselves in the trial chamber decided to divide it into case one and case two. Right. And then later, case two became case two slash one and uh, yep. case two slash two. Now, the reasoning was that they could get through something, taking off a bite that could be handled more mm. quickly. And the spectre of Milosevic, who died in the middle of the, of the 
tr trial, right. when he was facing some 50-some charges, uh, was obviously in their minds. So there was a rationale for doing that, for cutting off uh, S21, uh, Dawes mm -hmm. Lang, and going just for Doik. To a certain extent, that was uh, successful, I think. Uh, as a legal strategy. As a legal strategy. Yeah, it definitely set up the process for going after and trying Nunchia next mm. because of the links that were made between S21, Doik and Nunchia. And as you say, S21 is so graphic. It is uh, unique because it has been preserved. It right. was the, the, when the uh, Khmerus left town, they abandoned that site mm -hmm. with sadly, tragically, bodies that had been just murdered, uh, uh, still shackled to, to yep. iron beds, uh, blood on the floor and, 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 and the documents in great disarray. But the, uh, the site was discovered early on and from that moment it was preserved. Other sites throughout the country, we think, you know, there was something like 196 other prisons around right. the country at least. Um, they did not survive, they weren't preserved in that way because people scavenged, people were desperate for wood or paper and used the, uh, the materials that sure. were there or they were abandoned because they were places of too much pain and suffering, nobody wanted to have anything to do with it, so they were abandoned. I'm sure you've been to some of the sites where the skulls were lying on the sure. ground or just heaped up in a corner, cows walking through the, uh, uh, the site. Uh, so in that sense, S21 was there, still preserved physically, mm. and it was a, a much more of a known uh, factor. Of course, during the trial, an awful lot came out that people didn't know, details. I, I was thinking yeah. on Lay, actually, yeah. where uh, M13, yeah. and that in 1972, Doik and the Khmer Rouge hierarchy were already putting into practice the torture methods they would deploy after 1975. They were actually doing that in their so-called liberated areas mm. three years earlier. Yeah. And what happened out at Om Lai, where people were tied to bamboo poles, their ankles were cut, and as the rising waters came up, they were basically fed to the fish, alive. It was just extraordinary that, and it was going on so early on in the piece, yeah. and no one, no one seemed to catch on at that point. Well, interestingly, uh, there's a proposal now being made by Cambodia to the World Heritage Committee uh, to establish what they call a serial nomination for three sites. Right. So M13, yep. uh, Torslang and Chung Aik okay. uh, together as a, a sequence to show the pattern of the security system, the cosmos, security com cosmos yep. of the Khmer Rouge. And uh, one of the, the current director of, of Torslang is writing his master's uh, thesis, just finishing his master's thesis on M13. So it's... Uh, a very interesting place. Have you been out there? Yes, I have. I've been out there several times, actually, but uh, we went out there 15 years ago. When it came out in court, it was ah. like, um, okay, pack up the truck, yeah. get the cameras, and we went out there and we interviewed. There was a couple of people there, one family in particular, and uh, they took us on a tour. We kind of crossed Hill and Dale rivers, beautiful countryside, yeah. and then you get to the shallow graves, 
that were left behind where the water was and how they were and I mean it was all overgrown there was it was not as stark as say uh, Chung Ek as what most people know as the killing fields but was certainly uh, an extraordinary sight and there was a local story there that uh, after the locals began returning following the Vietnamese invasion that they refused to eat fish because they feared so many people had been fed to the fish by the Khmer Rouge that they wouldn't eat fish for another 10-15 years. Mm. Extraordinary. Well it's now been secured and when you went out there right. it was uh, it probably wouldn't have lasted much longer but right. it's now been secured uh, and um, is, going, is under the management of the Ministry of Culture mm-hmm. and Tall Slang. So those pits were where the where the prisoners were actually held. They were it was they were underground right. uh, prisons. They dug trend, uh, pits, yeah, round pits, and had all the all yep. the uh, people in with a bamboo roof, partly in order to, um, as we understand it, so that it wouldn't be spotted from the air from uh, aircraft. Um, uh, from the Khmer Republic right. flying over at the time, that it just looked like you couldn't see that there were buildings, there were no actual constructions above ground. Uh, I guess the cost of the tribunal now, they're still being added up. My suspicion is it's probably around $350 million, which a lot of people were balking at when it was going to be $50 million 20 years ago. I was going to ask you, do you think the costs are justified? I already know the answer to that. But uh, I remember once you're telling me that uh, the costs of the tribunal were equal to about one bridge over the Mekong River, and now there's many. <laughs> well, what do you say to people who kind of were dismissive of the tribunal because of the costs? We don't hear that argument so much anymore. It's interesting uh, whether even though the cost has gone up because the time taken mm. uh, has gone on. It is interesting that, that now you raise it again. I think people have got a bit more used to bridges over the Mekong, I suppose. Right. And there, of course, the international tribunals and mixed tribunals in different countries have come and gone. And been uh, more expensive too, more a lot more expensive. expensive. Yeah. So certainly, uh, you know, and if you... Uh, let alone, you know, something useful, perhaps like a bridge. You just compare it to advertising budgets. What's spent on warfare, on weapons, for well, heaven's sake? And it still works out. If there was two million people, you're looking at a who perished here under the Khmer Rouge. In God, bloody awful conditions. Yeah, it works out at an average cost of uh, about two hundred dollars a dead person. Even more widely, because of the, 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 the living, the survivors also suffered. So indeed, we, we indeed, can't yes. factor that in. It's, uh, it's, Which is where the whole cost thing yeah, becomes yeah. a bit of a silly... Yes. I mean, some people say, oh, it's only been five people right. uh, charged. And, of course, that comes to the question of the length of time it's taken, where we have had three of the five mm. have died in yep. the in process yes and uh two of them never got to to have the even the first uh, we've got yang siri uh, and his wife Ying tarik yeah they both died uh, well he died first and then she was uh removed from the you know excused from the court 
she was obviously not mentally fit. Yes, yes, and I, yes, I remember yeah. seeing her on the first day in court and uh, she snapped at the judge and she blamed Nun Chia. She kind of took off on her own and she was like, Nun Chia did it, Nun Chia did it, which is not exactly what the joint defence wanted to hear <laughs> in court. And uh, it, was, it was obvious she was uh, not right. Yes, yes, yes. But so she went. And then Nguyen Chia, well, uh, you know, he at least was uh, got a final judgment on case two slash one, right? Which was on the um, what people sometimes call evacuation. I think it's the wrong word. Forced uh, expulsion right. uh, of people from the cities into the countryside and further population crimes movement ag- and then crimes uh, against humanity and yeah. genocide so that he, came with he, that. He did. Uh, he was finally com- convicted on that. Sure. But on this second case, which is, in a sense, m- more serious because it's the the uh, forced labour, the mm-hmm. security centres, the tortures, the uh, executions. He died before the final judgment right. on that. So now, if there's a final judgment on those charges. Instead of four people who were originally charged for it, there's one still right. facing. What worries me now is if the Supreme Court is going to take yet another year after this final hearing, if that happens, will he still be alive by the time that happens? He's well, well into his 80s. I think it's, uh, that's the, you know, a real tragedy. That the, mm. uh, I, the five that were charged in the initial... Mm-hmm. Uh, introductory submission by the co-prosecutors and the 27 locations around the country that were representative of different types of crimes. I think that really did paint an accurate picture. Of course, it's never complete, but it was a reflection of what happened during the regime. But it's sad if only one person actually leads to is, is still there for the final it, judgment. It leads me into my next question, but I, I'd just like to point out as a historical legal footnote that uh, the 1979 trial, which was widely dismissed by the international community, charged Pol Pot and uh, Yang Seri, who was his foreign minister. He was Yang Seri was also charged but died before he could go to trial in uh, the current UN-backed court. But uh, just as an interesting footnote, Yang Seri is the only person in history to be um, charged with genocide twice, which will forever be against his name. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I, I think that it's worth touching for a moment on that 1979 trial because, first of all, most people don't know anything about it, never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And if they have heard, they will, they will have heard it was a show trial. Right. Vietnamese show trial is the way it's already described. and. I've done quite a bit of research on it and helped to gather all the documents from the trial together and they're published in a, I think, 600-page book uh, by University of Pennsylvania Press. Mm -hmm. And there were 36 uh, people, witnesses spoke at the trial, there were testimonies from uh, many, many more than that. The uh, judges, which included, interestingly enough, well, at the time, they didn't have judges. They had what they called people's assessors, who were people of all walks of life, Cambodians, who were the, on the uh, 
the assessors who came to the uh, mm -hmm. judgment. But there were international participants in that trial, which many people don't don't realise, from the United States, from Algeria, from Cuba, um, many different countries. And the if you look at the testimony, the documentation that was presented there, you will realise that well, it said it all, it's the wrong way to say it, but it laid it out clearly. And what the ECCC has done is to have gone in-depth, in minutiae, mm -hmm. over the same material. But uh, to be perfectly honest, in my opinion, I think if that trial had been supported a bit better and recognised, then the ECCC would not have been necessary. Sure, but that would never have happened, no. given the climate of the time Indeed. in 1979. Indeed. Cold War again. Yeah, no, the, the politics of it were against it. And the procedure, to be, to be fair, I have to say that the procedures followed uh, were somewhat problematic. But the two defendants were not in custody. Indeed, That's okay yep. under the civil law system. That's according to the system here in, in, in Cambodia. In absentia. In absentia trial is, is perfectly all right. But there was no real defence put up. So normally in an absentia trial, the defence will uh, will be presented seriously mm. and grounds for exoneration or sure. a reduction of uh, responsibility, etc. Explanations would be put. But it was pathetic. The the defence was absolutely pathetic. Hope Stevens, I think, was yes, a lawyer at the time. From the US of all places. Right. Yes. Um, that was very embarrassing when you read that defence. Yes, I have read the defence, but I, I also remember the academic and author Peter Maguire once saying to me that uh, the 1970 trial it might have been dismissed as a uh, as a show trial, but the evidence was not. The evidence is absolutely compelling what they gathered together and how the Khmer Rouge had treated their own mm. people. Absolutely, and what amazes me is that this trial was held in August 1979. Mm -hmm. Remember, so there's only eight months after the regime was overthrown. It was a situation in Phnom Penh, no electricity, no water, no facilities, no, of course, pre-computers. Deeply traumatised. Traumatised. You know, no um, legally trained people. There was one uh, person who had been a, a clerk of a court. Mm -hmm. There were uh, half a dozen people with any legal training. And yet they did manage in those eight months to gather the extraordinary amount of documentation, translate it into three languages. At the court, the documents were distributed in Khmer, French and English, same as the ECCC mm -hmm. here. And they were done, of course, they weren't uh, even photocopy machines. They were done by stencil machines and so forth. So uh, when I came across uh, the collection of the court documents in the National Archives here uh, in the late 80s, I realised that this was really important material. And so we digitised it all, catalogued it all as part of the Cambodian genocide program of Yale University with um, mm -hmm. Ben Kinn and the... Australian academic, academic in charge and so we uh, we put that together and that was the basis uh, all those documents were the basis of, of the book later published which was actually published by John Quigley a law professor from University of Pennsylvania who had been an expert witness at the tribunal in 1979 okay. so he'd spoken on the crime of genocide so 
what Peter Maguire said was exactly right. The evidence was not to be dismissed and has only been um, corroborated in great more detail by the ECCC. How do you think historians will uh, view the tribunal 10, 20, 30 years from now, once it's over and done with? Well, we've already had an extraordinary outpouring over the last year, I think, of articles and uh, several books assessing uh, the tribunal and the whole concept of what uh, people say is hybrid tribunal, mm -hmm. uh, the legal and judicial uh, challenges posed by a hybrid tribunal, which mixes together different uh, judges from different jurisdictions and different legal uh, backgrounds and so forth. And at every step along the way, there's co-prosecutors, co-investigating judges. There has to be agreement by both sides. Right. This has been very um, but do you challenging. Think, but do you think historians 20 years from now are going to care? <laughs> I mean, they're going to look back. They will look at, say, Maymut, the naval commander, who probably will not go to trial. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. But the, the argument will be that the evidence was insurmountable. It's well known what he did. The international prosecutors wanted to put him on trial, but the Cambodian prosecutors did not. And while that might cast certain elements in a positive or negative light from the tribunal, it's still going to be viewed in the overall scheme of things. Well, he didn't fully face justice, but we know who he is. We know what he did and it could reflect badly on the Cambodians at the time, but that will have been water under the bridge. Yes, I think uh, some people will seize on the uh, cases three and four and use those as a basis to really criticise the tribunal and uh, to say, oh, it only did one and two. Right. To my mind, I really support the view of the co-prosecutor at the time. So. 2008, yep. these charges were brought by the international co-prosecutor at the time, Robert Petit, Canadian. He brought these charges and she presented, a, I think, a very compelling rebuttal. It's not been a public document, although it is around uh, mm -hmm. on the internet, and I think it makes very, uh, as I say, compelling uh, argument that the introductory submission that was already brought for the five people, for the 27 uh, representative cases and the charges shows the picture. It does what the tribunal was set up to do. Right. You can always go, and there is there are undoubtedly many other people who committed heinous crimes. But how long do we go on uh, looking one after another? That's one case, one question to be answered. The other one is why pick another five people and not another ten or another fifty? These, these crimes were committed throughout the country. As we said before, 196 prisons around the country. We get into the cases of, well, is it arbitrary to just have these people? So there's that argument and there's cost argument. I personally um, think it's very interesting that there's not one Cambodian judicial officer, mm -hmm. from a judge, from a prosecutor, investigating judge, has actually supported these uh, cases three and four. And yet, the international side has driven it through all this time and has spent enormous amount of money. I, I think if we're talking about the cost of the tribunal, if you compare uh, cases one and two, which were the principal 
cases and then you compare how much has been spent on investigation, translation, uh, etc. for three and four which have been kept alive solely by the international side, uh, I think this raises serious questions and, and I personally don't think it should have gone forward without the uh, support from the Cambodian side, but that's just my opinion. And finally, I have to add congratulations as uh, I understand you've received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Association of Genocide Scholars for scholarly excellence in the field of genocide studies. Not too many people study genocide. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty out there way to live your life. You're happy with it? Oh, happy is not the right word, but... Uh, Fair call. <laughs> I'm pleased to have been able to do what I have, uh, not only in the field of scholarship and academia, but of actually working on the tribunal, working in the uh, public affairs and with the victim support and also working with Toolslang Genocide Museum on all the documentation. So I think I made the right decision when, uh, when I stayed in 1999, there was work to be done. And uh, here it is, <laughs> 2021 and still going. So no, it was a great honor, very unexpected, uh, that's for sure. And on that note, Helen, congratulations again and thank you for your time. Oh, <laughs>